It is good to be in God's house again and thankful for the song service and for you sticking with me on that last song. That's not one I was real familiar with, but the wording was really good for what we want to speak on this morning, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, grace and faith. The gospel of Jesus Christ, grace and faith. And this will be the beginning of a series of messages that we're going to preach through the book of Romans. And um, just being completely honest about it, um, Romans is difficult. <laughs> it's one of those things that you don't say, I'm going to preach on the book of Romans lightly. Um, I've heard some really, really good uh, preaching through the book of Romans in my lifetime from different ministers, but I've heard a lot of them also say, I think I'm going to preach through the, the book of Romans, and I'm a little nervous about it, and, you know, so if, if they say that, I definitely need to say that, but, but I am excited about it. Romans is um, considered by most to be the greatest and most comprehensive presentation of Christianity and Christian doctrine, doctrine that's ever been written, and it is likely the most important letter that has ever been written uh, in the history of the world, so uh, it, that's, that tells you a little bit about the, the seriousness of approaching uh, this book of Romans. It was written by the Apostle Paul uh, from Corinth about 57 AD, and it is the longest epistle that Paul wrote, and it's not addressed to the church at Rome. That's one of the things that's different about the book of Romans. It's not addressed to the church at Rome, but rather to, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So all the Christians that are in Rome is who this book is addressed to. Paul describes himself in verse 1 as the servant of Jesus Christ and that he was called to be an apostle. Paul also says he was set apart for the gospel of God. So we need to understand Paul a little bit and how he was called and some of those things very briefly, uh, we're not going to go back into Acts and, and go through the whole Damascus Road and, and what all happened, but briefly, just to describe who Paul is, Paul is not even Paul's real name, right? Paul was Saul, and Saul was some what the name meant, someone who was very ambitious, somebody who was very strong, somebody who stood out uh, among people, somebody who was what you could call really a go-getter, somebody who... You know, it was really after it. That, that's what the name meant in Saul. Now, what do you think Paul means? Paul means almost the exact opposite of that. It means really small. <laughs> it's a small, small thing. So, uh, so Paul went from being Saul, who was persecuting the church, who was a very religious man. Now, this is interesting. Paul was very religious man before the Lord gave him new birth. He was a very religious man. He knew the law. He had trained at the feet of, of one of the best. He was a Jew of the Jews, you could say. Very religious man. And yet when he's born again, he's completely changed. And if you are born again today, it is no different with you. It is no different with you. If you really are truly born again, if God has done a work in your life and in your heart, then you're a different person. You are a new creature. Now, in Saul's case, it was drastic, right? <laughs> I mean, he's on the road to Damascus, and the next thing you know, he's on his face. He went from, he, he didn't go kind of in a, in a you know, casual redirection, right? 
he, he, it was a complete 180. He went from persecuting the church and persecuting Jesus Christ to being a servant of Jesus Christ and not only a servant, an apostle. I, I don't know that there's ever been a bigger turnaround in the history of human beings. I mean, he, he went from somebody who was the actual enemy of the church to an apostle in the early church. So that's the person who's writing Romans. And he's writing this to the Romans, and he hasn't been there, but he's writing this to them, and he's in Corinth. It's about 57 A.D., and he's writing this to the saints that are there. And like we said, Paul describes himself as the servant of Jesus Christ that was called to be an apostle. And Paul says he was set apart for the gospel of God. But we would really get a lot of things wrong in Romans if we don't see from the very beginning that Paul serves Christ in the power that Christ supplies. So Christ gets the glory for Paul's service, and he wants us to know that from the very beginning. Uh, this sovereign Christ is the one uh, that we are going to be introduced to in this letter, and he's going to unpack really a, a lot of doctrine and what the gospel really means and what all really happens uh, when we come to know Jesus Christ. So Christ called Paul on the Damascus Road, and he commissioned him to be an authoritative representative in establishing the church on a firm footing of truth. So this letter, this book that we're going to study, which is a letter to the Romans, is one of the key pieces of, of uh, biblical literature that we go to to establish doctrine. And we've loved it through the ages. Uh, many of you that have grown up in the Primitive Baptist Church You've heard a lot about Romans 8, right? <laughs> I think Romans 8 is kind of holy ground for us. We love that chapter. We love Romans 9. We love Romans 5. We love Romans because of the doctrine that it sets forth very plainly and very systematically as Paul goes through. And as we'll see, he goes through a lot of doctrine and establishes a lot of truth. And then when he gets to chapter 12, he turns that and then he begins to talk about practically how that works out in our life. So we're going to see that as we go through this book. Just word of warning on the front end, this is probably going to take a long time. <laughs> this is not a book that you go through very quickly. If you do, you're going to miss too much. So we're not going to rush. We're going to take our time and go through and make sure that we have uh, as much understanding as we can in each different section. So Paul is set apart for the gospel of God. That's the last phrase of verse 1, God set Paul apart before he was born, Galatians 1.15 tells us, and then he says that he was set apart for the gospel of God, and that's what Paul is going to even begin to unpack in verses 2 through 4. So not completely, but he says this, that he's separated into the gospel of God. Now let's go ahead and read our passage. We're going to go verses 1 through 7 today of Romans chapter 1. So that's a little bit about the background of the book of Romans. <clears throat> now we're going to dive into our text this morning. And I use verse 1 kind of just to help with that introduction. Here's Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated into the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. 
by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we look at that text as a whole, as you can see from verse 7, these first seven verses are Paul's salutation. It's Paul's introduction as he writes to the Romans. And I think it's so interesting that the first thing that Paul talks about is the gospel. He can't even get through with his salutation. He can't even say, you know, it's very common for Paul to say in verse 7, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Go look at all the epistles. You'll see what I'm talking about. That's a very common phrase that Paul uses. But Paul can't even get to that without saying, let me tell you a few things about the gospel. There, here's some things about the gospel that you need to know. So that's what we're going to unpack today in verses 2 through, really 2 through 5 is the, is the meat of it. And then we'll close out with verses 6 and 7 with this salutation that he gives at the end. But really we want to focus on the gospel that Paul is referring to when he says that he was set apart uh, for the gospel of God. Set apart unto the gospel of God. So the first thing that he says is the gospel promised before. Now I changed the word afore to before. I think we can all agree that's the same thing. So we don't use the word afore very often anymore. Uh, that's King James language. But the first point that we want to make this morning is the gospel promised before. The gospel promised in the scriptures. So the first thing we see in this is that the gospel of God is the fulfillment of Old Testament, Old Testament promises. He says in verse 2, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So when Paul says in the Holy Scriptures, in his time, he's, he is, as we speak, writing the New Testament, right? He's writing this letter to the Romans. So when Paul says the Holy Scriptures, he's looking backwards at the Old Testament Scriptures and the prophets. And he says the gospel that Paul is going to systematically unpack in this Roman letter is not some new idea or new religion. I think that's the real crux of the matter that Paul is getting at when he says this gospel is promised before. It is the fulfillment of Old Testament promises. It's not a new religion. It's not Paul's new gospel. It's not the new ideas of Paul. It is the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. That's what Paul is saying. This, this, this God that I'm going to tell you about, this gospel of God, is the same God of the Old Testament. It is not new. So what he was preparing and promising then, he has fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ. So if you wanted to kind of prove this to yourself, you could really just go read the entire book of Isaiah. Just go read Isaiah. Isaiah promised about a coming king, about a coming savior. And we're going to unpack that in a little different way a little bit later on. We'll read a couple of those texts as we go through. But really what he's saying here is this gospel that I'm going to preach to you, that I'm going to unpack in such an amazing way through the book of Romans is not new. This is a fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. Another thing that we see in this is that just kind of by default, is that God keeps his promises. Isn't that amazing? Everything that God said in the Old Testament, 
about the Messiah that was going to come, Jesus Christ fulfilled. I mean, it's amazing. Have you, if you've never done it before, if you have one of the old Strong's concordances at your house, there's a thing in the back. You go to the back, go to the back, go to the back. And in the very back, there's just a couple of sheets that show all the promises made about the Messiah on one side and their fulfillment in the New Testament. It just directly links it. Here's what the Old Testament said the Messiah would be like. Here's where Jesus Christ fulfilled it. Here's where the Old Testament said this. This is where Jesus fulfilled it. All of those promises that God made are kept through the coming of Jesus Christ. So the prophets were in the Old Testament, and you have to understand that the people who, who Paul is talking to now, the situation that they were in, these Jews, all of those promises were made. The Messiah is going to come. The Messiah is going to come. Hundreds of years go by. Have you ever felt like that? Like, man, you know, is God, you know, this revival, I think, is a good, good um, reminder of that. You know, sometimes we pray for revival, and we pray for a revival, and it doesn't come, and it doesn't come, and, and we begin to doubt. Well, the Jews, they had been promised the Messiah hundreds of years earlier. And so now what Paul is telling them is the fulfillment of that has come, and it's in Jesus Christ. That was something that was really difficult for them to see, partly because they kind of had it wrong what that would be like, and we're going to get to that in a minute too. But God keeps his promises, and he fulfilled all of those promises in Jesus Christ, who had been promised centuries before. Now, centuries later, he has come, and he's fulfilled those promises, and that strengthens our faith in God when we see through his provision that he keeps his promises. That can even be in the little things of our life. Did you know that? Can you look back in your life and see something that God did in your life that is a revealed promise, that, that he's being true to himself? I think we all could say that. We all could say there's things. And by those provisions, that strengthens our faith. We see that God is a keeper of his promises. Now, the other thing that I think is so important about Paul saying this is he's also kind of um, giving us the idea that these are holy and inspired writings that we should revere and believe this is an implication he makes through verse 2 for our doctrine of scripture because he says in verse 2 which he who is that talking about god you could say which god had promised afore by his prophets in the holy scriptures so first there is god then there's a promise that god wills to make and he makes that promise through prophets who write it down, but God himself is remaining the speaker. He speaks his promise through prophets, and then their writings, those writings are called holy scriptures, set apart. The, that's what we believe about the scriptures. So as we go through the book of Romans, you need to remember what we believe about the scriptures. We believe that the scriptures are not something that Paul thought was important for us to hear. If it was just that and only that, then we might want to give it some credence considering who Paul was. But it wouldn't be infallible, right? Paul was a fallible man. But God spoke through his men, and it's that inspiration of Scripture that we believe in that makes the Scriptures 100% infallible. It's because God spoke. See, it says God promised through the prophets. They wrote it down. It didn't say even by, but it said through whom God delivered those promises were through the prophets. So why are these scriptures holy? Well, it's because they're, they're set apart from all other writings because they're one of a kind, because they are God-spoken, God-breathed. 
And because of that, we take them to be the truth. If you want to know why, if you look at the front of your Bible right now, it probably says Holy Bible. You want to know why it says that? Romans 1-2. That's the reason why, because it's called the Holy Scriptures here. Uh, so that is the answer to that question. And so as we go through and as, as you hear preaching, as you are reading your Bible, studying your Bible, which is so important for Christians today, we believe that Paul's letter to the Romans is the Word of God. It is not merely the Word of man. The gospel was promised in holy writings inspired by God, and the gospel is unfolded and preserved for us in holy writings also inspired by God. This is what we believe, and that makes a huge difference in the way we view truth and doctrine and preaching and worship and really everything else in the world. See, what, what we talk about a lot at my school is a biblical worldview. We talk about that a lot. What does that mean? That means that in everything that you think about the world and in the ways that you interact with the world, you ought to be guided by the scriptures. That the Bible is the rule that we then determine everything that we believe about all that there is in the world. So Paul says about the gospel of God that it was promised long ago, and it's the gospel which he promised beforehand through his prophet in the Holy Scriptures. Now secondly, our second point, first one, remember, is that uh, the gospel promised before. Now secondly, as we look down, the next thing that Paul's going to talk about is the subject of the gospel. The subject. So what is it that the gospel is about? First, he says, I want to remind you that this was promised before. This is not new. This is not something Paul's making up. This is not Paul's message to the Romans about what I think. This is something that was promised before. Now he says, let me tell you what the gospel is really about, the subject of <coughs> the gospel. And that's in the beginning of verse 3. So I'll repeat verse 2 again to get the context, which he had promised before by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So the second thing he says about the gospel of God here in Romans 1-3 is that it concerns God's Son. The gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, is concerning his Son. The gospel of God has to do with the Son of God. Now, Romans, I'm just going to go ahead and warn you, Romans is going to stretch your mind a little bit in parts that we get to. There are deep doctrines in Romans, some things that are very hard to understand. Some things that even possibly uh, there may be some, some disagreement on. But in all of that, we need to remember to get back to the simplicity of what did Paul say the gospel is about? Jesus Christ. It's really, in some ways, that simple. The gospel is about the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So as we stretch our minds into these deep doctrines and trying to understand some, some pretty difficult concepts, as we go through this book, I don't want us to forget the simplicity of the gospel as well, and I think that's another reason why Paul begins this way. He begins with just a real simple rundown of the gospel. Jesus Christ. But, yet, but next, we get a little detail about Jesus Christ that is also of utmost importance. So what does Paul... Paul says, look, the gospel, this gospel that I'm talking about, is concerning the subject of it, what it's about 
is the Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. But what does he say about him? So he says, okay, this is what we know about Jesus Christ. First, the humanity of Jesus Christ. So we're going to break this down into about three separate things about the subject of the gospel. So we, we know that it's Jesus Christ. Well, the first thing that Paul tells us is about the humanity of Jesus Christ. He is a descendant of David, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. Paul says that Jesus was born a descendant of King David according to the flesh. And that really says two things at one time. First, he was born. Uh, the work that he had to do, the mission that he was on, required that he take on a human nature along with his divine nature. But God did not choose a man and make him his son. He chose to make his eternal one and only son a man. There's a difference. So Jesus Christ did not begin to exist when he was born in Bethlehem. The Son of God was pre-existent, and then he was made to be flesh. He entered into humanity. He was born in the line of King David in the Old Testament. It's a really interesting tie-in with the, the book that we just studied in Ruth. You remember at the end of Ruth, what's the big reveal at the end of Ruth? The big reveal at the end of Ruth is that Ruth's son would then have a son, would then have a son. Anyway, it gets down to King David. And then King David would have children, and those kids would go down and go down, and that's Jesus Christ. So in the line of Ruth and Boaz would come a king, David, but then even more important than that, and much more important than that, would come a king whose reign would never end. And that king is Jesus Christ. So he is born in the line of David, uh, the king in the Old Testament. So why is that part of the gospel of God? Why is that good news? And the answer is, is that the promises, all the promises of the Old Testament that Paul had referred back to, promises like this, Jeremiah 23, 5, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. Promises like Isaiah eleven ten, In that day the root of Jesse, the son of David, Jesse's offspring, will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him. And his place of rest will be glorious. So all of those promises that about a Messiah was coming to be fulfilled, Jesus had to take on human flesh. So the gospel of God is the good news that now, after hundreds of years, God has acted to fulfill his plan and promise that a king would come in the line of David. The government will be on his shoulders, we read in Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. And he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, the mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. So the gospel of God is the good news that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Mark 1, 14 and 15 said, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The coming of the Son of God into the world as a man was the coming of the Son of David, the promised King. And it says he would rule over the nations and triumph over the enemies of God and rule with righteousness and peace. And according to Isaiah 35.10, the ransom of the Lord shall return and come with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them and sorrow and mourning will flee away. 
<coughs> that is what makes verse 3 the gospel of God. The coming of the Son of God as the Son of David would mean everlasting joy in the presence of God for all the ransom of the Lord. So Christ had to take a human form to be able to come and be the Messiah that was promised. That had to happen. And, and I'm not going to do, preach a sermon on the humanity of Christ this morning. It's, it's tempting to do so, but we want to move on. But I think it's important for us to realize what that means. We can't just haphazardly say that one person of the Trinity took on human form and just pass over that like that's normal. Okay? It, it, is, it is really incomprehensible what happened when Christ, it says, who set aside his glory as if he took off a vesture and became flesh. That, that, that kind of humility uh, is, is really beyond us to even describe. So don't just say, oh, well, yeah, Jesus became human. That is miracle of miracles. It is you know, something that we will never really truly probably understand until we get to heaven, that Christ was made flesh. You remember in John 1 the focus that, that John put on that in his gospel as well, that the word was made flesh. So the very God who created all things enters into creation. What an amazing thing that is. That's part of the gospel is that Christ humbled himself and took upon him the form of a servant. There in that wonderful Christology we see in Philippians chapter 2, said he took upon him the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of man. So he became human. He had a human body. But secondly, that's not all uh, that there is. There also see the deity of Christ. Paul says at the beginning of verse 3 that this gospel is concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That backs up the statement above the deity of Jesus Christ. And then with verse 4, declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So the fact that the spirit testifies and ultimately the greatest testimony that he really is the Son of God is that he came out of the tomb. And we're going to see that. We're going to go to a couple of places in scripture to show that. But Jesus Christ, even though he became a man, he didn't give up his deity. He didn't, he didn't become fully man. He was still fully God and fully man. Like we said before, very difficult for us to understand. In our, in our human minds, there's no such thing as 100% and 100% equals 100%, right? That doesn't work. <laughs> then our math just doesn't make sense. We would say, no, that's not right. It's 50% and 50% makes 100%. Not in this case. In this case, Jesus was 100% God and 100% man in one person. Uh, and so the deity of Christ is also established here in Paul's gospel. In, in Colossians 2.9, Paul says, in, in another letter to the Colossians, Paul says this, In Christ, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. So he, he dwells in bodily form in Jesus Christ. So when Paul says that the gospel of God concerns his son, he means that it has to do with his divine preexistent son. The gospel of God is not about God rearranging human affairs in a better way. It's about God infiltrating human affairs from outside in the person of his son who is the perfect image of the father and is himself also God. So Paul puts a really big weightiness to the gospel of God by saying first, that it is promised in, by God in the Old Testament. Second, 
It concerns his divine son, who, by the way, is became human, but was also the sovereign creator of the universe, and that in that, he's going to accomplish redemption for his people. Now, I kind of gave this away, but there's also something else in verse 4 that points to um, the deity of Christ and to who he really is, and that's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, in verse 4, Paul says that Jesus died and rose again and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So now, this is where, and I'm going to backtrack a little bit. You remember I told you these Jews for hundreds of years, they've been waiting on a Messiah to come. But their view of what would happen there is that when the Messiah comes, he is going to put down all of the enemies in an earthly way. So in this context, it would be, and this is interesting because who is Paul writing this to? He's writing to Christians in Rome. So in their mindset, it would be that Christ is going to come and he's going to throw off Roman oppression. He's going to defeat the Romans and he's going to set up an earthly kingdom and he's going to rule forever. And, and that was their mindset. That's what they really thought. Even the apostles had that mindset, right? We see that they keep going back to that. Um, it's really interesting in, in that uh, show, The Chosen. You know, there's things in that that some of the things I think are, I don't like, but overall I've really enjoyed it. Well, in that, it's kind of interesting to see the apostles' mindset. You know, when Jesus is not around and they're all talking, you know, you're just kind of going, oh, my goodness, can they, not, can they not get it? But if we were there, we would be that way or worse. You know, we, we, would, we wouldn't be any different. But they really expected for someone to come and defeat the Romans, establish an earthly kingdom in Jerusalem, and live forever triumphant with his people. Well, then these apostles are saying that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah, and this is what happened to Jesus. He came and was rejected of his own people and ends up dying a horrible death as a criminal, and they're saying he's raised again the third day. That's not the vision of the Messiah that they quite had in mind. But what proves that he is the Messiah is that he is risen from the dead. This is at the very heart of the gospel. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the evidence of the acceptance of the sacrifice that was made for our sins. Paul says uh, in Corinthians, If Christ be not raised, then the preaching of the gospel is vain, and our faith is vain. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 13, and 14. So then... Paul says in this context, in Romans, he says two things about their resurrection. This resurrection from the dead was according to the spirit of holiness. So what does that mean? When Paul says that it's according to the spirit of holiness, what does that mean? Let's go to Romans 8 and verse 11. In Romans 8, 11, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. In you, This teaches that we will be raised by the Spirit of God who dwells in us in the same way that Christ was raised. So the Spirit of God was involved in the raising of Jesus from the dead. John Gill agrees with that. He says the, the same thing, that it is uh, speaking of the Holy Spirit uh, that raised Christ from the grave and will also raise us. We're raised in the same way by the same power. By this resurrection, Christ was declared the Son of God with power. So this is the second thing that he says about this resurrection. He says, by this resurrection, Christ was declared the Son of God with power. That word power can also be 
attributed authority. So he has authority as the Son of God. Um, it, it modifies, that word with power modifies the, word son, the words Son of God. And the point is not that Christ was not the Son of God before the resurrection. He was. The point is, is that at the resurrection, Christ moved from being the Son of God in lowliness and human limitation and weakness to being the Son of God with power. He has accomplished all that he came to do. He is no longer, you know when Christ comes the second time, it's not going to be like the first time. Did you know that? I'm thankful for that. Um, Christ, we speak about the humility of Christ in his first advent. Christ came in a lowly human form. He was born in a manger, like we said. His own people rejected him. All of those things. Christ is not coming that way again. The next time Christ comes, he's coming as a conquering king. He's coming with power and with authority. And the day will come when Christ will defeat every enemy. Every knee will bow and confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's Philippians 2, 11. So declared to be the Son of God with power because of the resurrection. It is the resurrection that is the proof of that. Uh, if, you know, Paul said very plainly there in, in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ is in the tomb, then everything that we're doing is in vain. The gospel's in vain, our preaching's in vain, your faith is in vain. If Christ be in the tomb, then we are of all men most miserable. Now, moving on, here in verse 5, after he talks about this resurrection from the dead, verse 5 he says, By whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. So I want to title this section, Grace and Faith. This is point number three, Grace and Faith. So one, one of these is really easy to figure out, kind of how to unpack this. And then some of it I think is a little more difficult. But Paul says, by whom we, remember he's preaching, he's talking to believers here. This is a letter to believers. And Paul being a believer too. He says, by whom we have received grace. So we're going to take that first. Grace, and he says grace and apostleship. We're going to take grace first. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, it's because you've experienced grace. There's no other way around it. If not, if you don't believe that, then that means you have something to do with your own salvation, and that's not what we believe. It's either by grace. Have you heard this in the Bible somewhere? It's either by grace or by works. And if it's of works, then it's no more of grace. And it's of grace, it's no more of works. And so Paul says, we have received grace. That's the heart of the gospel. It is that because of grace, we are saved. So by whom you have received grace and apostleship, we're taking this first part about grace. The apostle Paul had surely experienced saving grace, right? I think we can all kind of, Admit to that, if you go back in Acts and look at his experience, it's very obvious that Paul has experienced saving grace. And so he says, if you're a believer, then you've experienced grace. There is no grace towards sinner apart from the, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is by him, by Jesus Christ our Lord, that we experience grace, the grace of God. We, we cannot even approach into God unless our sins have been paid for and we've been justified. So without for us to experience grace, Jesus Christ had to come and pay the price for us to be reconciled 
to God. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10, you can probably quote that. What does that say? For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That's how we're saved. That is how we're saved. We're saved by grace, not by works. And Paul's getting that straight from the beginning. He says, we have, ex we have received grace and apostleship. So grace is a reality that comes from God and comes through Jesus and his work for us. It's not something that we have a right to or it wouldn't be grace. Grace, Jesus obtained it for us. So we get it freely because of the obedience and death of another. You see, if, if grace is something that we could earn, it would no longer be grace. <laughs> then it would be something that you're owed. And we are not owed salvation. Grace is something that we receive because of the obedience of another. Now, secondly, it's kind of interesting because Paul says, by whom we have received grace and apostleship. And apostleship. So what does he mean by that? Well, Paul did not only just experience saving grace because of his salvation, Paul also received grace in that he was called to ministry, particularly in his case, apostleship. So this calling that he has an apostle was a gift of grace and that that he fulfills the ministry by the power of that same grace. So grace is not just God's clemency towards Paul's sin, but it's also power to enable Paul to do his calling as an apostle. Paul says um, in chapters 12 and 15 of Romans, in 12.6, Paul says, we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. You see what he's doing there? He's linking spiritual gift gifts to grace. He says it's by grace that we have spiritual gifts. Through the grace given to me in verse 12.3, uh, he says, through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you. So Paul is, you know, speaking about his apostleships and talk, calling it the grace that's been given to him. Grace was given me from God to be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, he would say in another place. So when he says in verse 1-5 that we've received grace and apostleship, he means that God not only saved him from his sins by grace, but he also gave him a grace to be an authoritative spokesman for the risen Son of God in power. Now, you say, I can't relate to that, right? And you're right, and I can't either. I'm not an apostle. You know, it, 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 just, it just worries me every time, you know, I pass one of those churches where it says on the front of the sign, like, you know, Apostle John whatever, Smith. That's dangerous. You know, what they're claiming there, I don't know that they know what they're claiming, but what they're claiming there is that they're authoritative, that they have authoritative teaching, a direct revelation from God. Well, that doesn't exist. There, there's, there are no apostles anymore. So you say, well, I don't really relate to that when Paul says that he was given grace to be saved from his sins, but he was also given grace to be an apostle. Well, you're also given grace in your life. You're delivered from your sins, but you also have grace to fulfill God's calling in your life, whatever that might be. That can be something as simple as being a mother, as being a father, as being a leader. It could be that you're called to ministry, but if so... That's by the grace of God, and God will give you grace to fulfill that calling in your life. Isn't that a great promise that we can lean on? That if God calls us to something, he's going to give us the grace to fulfill it. In Paul's case, it was that Paul was an apostle. So Paul says, look, 
There's two big things here that I want you to know. Number one, I was saved by grace. I got grace. I was saved by grace from my sins. Also, I have grace to be an apostle. You know, if, if there wasn't grace for our calling, I wouldn't want to attempt it. Uh, I wouldn't want to try it. So he says there's grace for the calling in your life as well. I think that's important. It's a shot in the arm to us as we try to fulfill that which God would call us to do. He goes on in this verse to say that this calling that he has an apostle is for obedience to the faith among all nations. Obedience to the faith among all nations. So why was God, uh, why was Paul called as an apostle? It's to the obedience of faith among all nations. John Gill said it this way. This is meant of the grace of faith attended with evangelical obedience. For obedience rightly performed is only that which is by faith and springs from it. Now grace and apostleship were received in order to be exercised among all nations, to which the first commission of apostleship was limited, but in, but in all nations of the world as a commission renewed by Christ after his resurrection ordered. You remember that when, in, uh, when Christ in Matthew 28, what does he say? Go ye therefore into all, unto all nations, preaching the gospel. So it is expanded. And by the power of divine grace accompanying the word, be brought to faith and obedience. That is evangelism. So what he says here is Paul's called to be an apostle because Paul's going to go out and preach to the nations, and there's going to be grace that accompanies that. And because of that, there are going to be people brought to faith and repentance. And that's what I believe about the preaching of the gospel. You know, I can preach to people until they're blue in the face, and I'm blue in the face. And it's not going to do anything unless there's a grace of God that goes before and prepares. And that's what he's talking about here, to the obedience of faith among all nations. There's a grace that goes uh, to the obedience of faith among all nations. And then lastly about, about this part, he says that, that all of this is done for his name. Now, I really like the ESV translation here. It says, for the sake of his name. So we are saved by grace through faith. It's what Paul is saying here, right? I think that's pretty clear from the scriptures. We're saved by grace through faith. Paul's called to the work of that to present the gospel among all nations to the obedience of faith. So we are saved by grace through faith. And God has ordered it so for a reason. Because it is not of works and no man can boast. Christ receives all the glory in our salvation. In our salvation, in our calling, in our obedience, in our faith, in all things, Christ gets the glory. I was a little bit kind of just disappointed. I've been doing a lot of reading and studying, and some of our, our ministers have been kind of going back and forth about justification by faith or eternal justification and all these different things. And in some of the writings, some of them have said, well, you know, if justification by faith is true, that means that salvation is by works because faith... And I'm saying, wait a minute. What primitive Baptist has ever believed that faith is a work? I never have. I've never believed that. Our faith is not a work. Our faith is a gift of God. That's something the Holy Spirit, if you're born again, the Holy Spirit comes in and gives you spiritual life. And because of that, then you're able to exercise faith. That's a gift of God. And we never need to forget that. So the obedience of faith is not a work that we do. It's for God's Son gets all the credit. It's for his name. 
So we are saved by grace through faith, and God has ordered it so because his son will get all of the glory in that. Christ gets all the glory. Brother Zach used to say, if you want good theology, this, you can sum it up this way. God gets 100% of the credit, and we get 100% of the blame for all the bad, and that's good theology. Well, he's right about that. If, if anybody ever comes to you and part of their theology is, is that you have to play a part, well, then guess what? That means then if you have to play a part in it, then you're going to get part of the credit, right? Now, it just makes sense. So, you know, we have a work day back here, and I missed the last one. I hated I couldn't come, but I didn't get to come, so I didn't get to participate in that. Now, do I get to take any of the credit <laughs> for what was done that day? Do I get to go back there and say, man, look what we did. That is great. I'm glad they got all that siding put on there. That's wonderful. No, that's not how it works, right? But if I did show up and did part of the work, then I can go back there and say, look what we did. Look what we did. It looks great. And I can, even if I only handed the hammer up, the ladder, I can still say I took part in it, right? I, no matter how big or small, I can say I took credit in that. Well, if you do anything that you believe leads to your salvation, then you have reason to boast. And the Bible is very plain that that's not the way God designed it. It is for his name for his glory that's what we believe about salvation that in salvation christ jesus christ gets all the credit we don't get to to take any of that and you know what i'm glad of that and here's why because i know myself <laughs> and if if god just left one little thing for me to do i don't know if y'all saw it or not i posted it on facebook this week it's this picture of this guy and he's kind of reaching up for a ladder and it says if if jesus did 99.99 percent of the work and he left 0.01% for me to do, then I'm going to be lost. Uh, God had to do 100% or we'll be lost. And I feel that way about myself. If he left just that one little one hundredth of a percent for me to do, I'd be in trouble. You know, God did it all. And God gets all the credit and he gets all the glory in it. That is, that is the salvation that Paul's going to unpack here in Romans. So in closing, Paul says in verses 6 and 7, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. So he said, all of these things that I'm describing to you about my salvation and my calling and the grace that was given to me and the obedience of faith, all of these things that I'm describing to you, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. It is no different to you, Romans. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ because they are beloved of God because they are called to be saints because they are the called of Jesus Christ Paul can say to them grace and peace unto you if you have followed the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and repentance then you have a peace that is different than any other kind of peace that this world offers there there may be people in this world apart from the gospel that think they have peace they really don't have peace, not the kind of peace that the gospel brings. Reconciliation with our creator. That's a kind of peace that you cannot have apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I, I pray these things have been a blessing to you. We're going to continue on through Romans chapter 1. Uh, be praying, be reading ahead if you would like as we go through this book. I think that would be very helpful. Uh, just to read ahead and what we're going to be. So the rest of chapter 1, as we prepare to do that, uh, just uh, pray about it and, and let's enjoy this wonderful book that has been preserved for us in Romans.